the theme for the evening talk is neither grasping onto nor turning away from. <clears throat> A few days ago, I was in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, to uh, go to Wisdom Publications to speak there, uh, to uh, meet there with one of the people there, and then after that to go on to CIMC, the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, which is a sister place here to uh, IMS. And with the visit to uh, Wisdom Publications, if I may, I'd just like to start off the talk with a small um, advertisement, and since we live in a culture where advertisements and events have to go together, I would hate to break the tradition. <laughs> so, um, Wisdom Publications, to its uh, um, everlasting uh, credit, has been um, publishing at quite some financial uh, uh, risk the uh, texts of the Buddha. And I say it like that insofar as it's a huge uh, undertaking. And the first book that was uh, put out was The Long Discourses of the Buddha, hardback, it's in six or seven hundred uh, pages, and some would consider it uh, a fairly uh, specialized uh, kind of uh, reading. And Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is an American monk who has been based for the past 25 years or more in uh, Sri Lanka, he, and along with um, some uh, other monks of the last generation to, or two, have been engaged in an entire, t uh, uh, entire tremendous task and tirelessly translating these ancient texts from the Pali into the English. And the next volume, and the one which is the most noted of them all, is the middle-length Discourses of the Buddha, which amounts to 154 discourses. And so the number of pages correspondingly increased to a hardback of 1,400 pages. And one can imagine the amount of time, work and cost to put that publication out, and certainly to a rather limited market. And people have said uh, over, over the years that they're not easy to comprehend these uh, texts. So uh, Shada, who has, like myself and uh, other teachers, a uh, great love of the suttas and reads regularly, decided to put together, initially for herself, uh, a kind of brief study guide which gives an outline to these suttas, and a number of friends heard uh, about it, and they have served as a wonderful introduction, uh, uh, the study guide. And so on uh, Monday, Shada is going to uh, Wisdom uh, Publications, and, and possibly, hopefully, there may be some possibility for that to be published. A number of you have written notes to us during the days here of recommended reading, recommended uh, texts. So the Dharma world and the world of uh, practice and insight meditation uh, community does have these texts as a, a very ancient uh, resource. And in fact, much of what you listen to and hear uh, here genuinely goes back through the years, through the generations, and in these uh, ancient uh, texts, very similar themes 
and statements are repeated again and again in different ways to help contribute to the living and realizing what an enlightened life really means and the great freedom that goes with it. And, in, and the other day when I was uh, there at Wisdom Publications, they're now engaged in the third step, which is to publish what is called the Connected Discourses of the Buddha. And once again, it's another huge investment from Wisdom Publications, because this is 2,080 pages. It consists of uh, about 2,800 uh, short discourses uh, of, of the Buddha. And the uh, work and the diligence of Bhikkhu Bodhi, once again, in a tremendous work of scholarship to make this text uh, available and to bring the text into a more readable form from the earlier translations, often by uh, uh, scholars. And in uh, speaking uh, with uh, Tim O'Neill on um, uh, Wednesday, he commented uh, to me that this, some $100,000 is being invested uh, in, in, into this. And I said, said to him that really our network and community, the international network and community, um, is the one which of all the uh, various communities and those with a strong Buddhist focus, is the one which has, uses as the greatest resource these particular texts. Other traditions may use the, from their traditions uh, as well, or from uh, Sanskrit, etc. So we have a strong connection and link uh, with all, all of this. And in that respect, all that we can do, that is, uh, Sally and Shadra and I, is to give people encouragement to take an interest in these, their wonderful depth of insights and understandings which are there. And I asked him to give me a, uh, a photocopy of the uh, advertisement which is put in the inquiry, Inquiring Mind, which is the biannual newspaper put out of our community on the West Coast. Uh, just information about this particular collection of the discourses of the Buddha coming out in late September. And sometimes, uh, in uh, America and in corporate America, etc., et there, uh, there are various trusts and foundations and organizations who are willing to uh, help uh, sponsor these kind of publishing ventures, in this case of very sacred religious texts. And if any of you uh, know, and I want to say this, Wisdom isn't my publisher, I'm not, in, I'm not on any uh, uh, a retainer, uh, etc. Um, that if any of you know any uh, uh, trusts or foundations who might be willing to help uh, Wisdom with this wonderful initiative, uh, please do get hold of them. Their office is in Somerville um, in Boston and uh, Tim O'Neill is the man to get in touch with. Eh? It's Mick, Mac, Mick Neal. He won't mind. You can call him any Neal you like. He'll, he'll, uh, <laughs> <laughs> except you just buy the books <laughs> so and on, actually on the if I may say on the, sa the same day just uh, as uh, walking down um, Broadway towards CIMC it's the only chance I ever get to appear on Broadway that uh, while going down the, there I just remembered sorry Sally I just, rem <laughs> I just remembered 
that um, 33 years ago previously, on uh, I just stuck in my mind the April 26th date, because the date that I and no doubt plenty of others started on this hitchhiking road to uh, India. And sometimes, I'm sure you've had these experiences yourself, a, a certain kind of deja vu uh, in life in, in various ways. And one of those which uh, uh, struck me was that in my first visit to Saranath, where uh, the Buddha gave his first uh, teachings and outlined in length and detail the essence of the middle way, one extreme uh, being uh, obsession with self, the building up of the self, and the other extreme, uh, self-rejection, um, the putting down of the self and trying to find that middle, explore that middle way between those extremes. And uh, while there visiting the temple uh, on the edge of the grounds of uh, the park where the Buddha gave these first uh, teachings, I picked up a couple of small uh, books, bought them uh, on the Buddha's teachings, and they had a very strong impact uh, on me. And some of you here have mentioned too that you've read something, and from the initial impact there's been a contact with that, and from that uh, contact there's been a response, and that response has led to some kind of uh, action. And the two themes which uh, struck me in the re reading there, uh, one was the strong emphasis, as we have touched upon a lot over these days together, of uh, impermanence, and to learn to live with it, and to work with it, and to really be steady with it, the, the, the field of change. And the other one is in the relationship on, to clinging, and this holding, grasping mind that goes on uh, with us. And how easy, when there are difficulties which are arising in, in our life, we get lost in the difficulties, and we forget to really turn our attention very clearly and very directly, what is it, in fact, we are holding on to? And, and to attend more to the clinging, the grasping, the possessiveness, the being identified with, to, give real, to really look at that rather than to be preoccupied with what it's in connection with. The holding and the grasping causes the suffering. And this struck me as it has struck others for centuries upon centuries as just one simple feature to bring greater awareness to our life. And perhaps at that time, very much being on the road and having, if I may say, hitchhiked through whatever, some 30 countries or more, and in therefore kind of living a, a way of life which was lots of impermanence in it from one day to the next, lots of changes going on, and having a real opportunity to see where there was any clinging and attachment taking place as, as well. And in the cycle of things, in most uh, unexpected ways, that one hadn't really, could never have thought of nor, nor planned, that some two or three years ago, the abbot of the Thai monastery in Saranath sent a, a message over to me um, asking if I would like to come and uh, teach uh, in Saranath. And it seemed, you know, in a kind of cycle of starting, I always have felt I, that's where I started off. That was the major. Uh, initial turning point, and then to have this extraordinary privilege to follow it all around in a circle 
and, and that's the place where I, uh, I've been invited to go and teach. And a number of us, uh, Shada, of, uh, of course, and a number of other friends, a number of you um, here, Seth, and uh, Vernon, and uh, others have been to Saranath and uh, know the environment uh, well there. And in saying all of that, in the, and in the, the focus and the direction uh, of, of our life, the, there are some features in it which, in the movement of our inner life, is part of the uh, emphasis. And that emphasis we have touched upon in different ways. And one uh, of those emphases is what is the process, and this is the important thing here, what is the process that goes on with us to help give a sense of process unfolding rather than the self, self, self. And that shift is an important shift in human awareness, human observation, and, and in fact human experience. So when we speak of not-self, which is probably one of the most difficult things that people struggle with, it seems utterly incomprehensible when one he hears this, but what we're speaking of, once again, is a shorthand in which there is a movement away from self, self, self to one of dependent arising. And this is a technical term, dependent arising. So if one hears of not-self, one is, puts it in exactly the same way, but a different language, what is dependently arising. So sometimes we say, the self says, I say or whatever, Oh, I do this, and that has an impact. And others do this to me, and that has an impact. And we get used to moving backwards and forwards again and again in the view of what happens connects to the self. What I do connects and from me. And therefore the way of looking at it is self is the cause and self is the effect. Self is the cause and self is the effect. And this view of self as cause, I create this, I decide this, I do this, I make this. The self is the cause and then the results come and then the one says, ah, this is the result. And, therefore, and the result is uh, the effect, as it were, on the self. And this view gets very much consolidated. And so it is not unusual, and this is what the Buddha pointed out, the self says, I start this, and the initiative for it may be good, may be creative or useful, so I begin this, and time passes by, and then the, re the result comes. Sometimes, therefore, one says, I started this, therefore I am the cause, and then it's come to this, and this is the result, and now I get the result. And then sometimes they say, oh, it's wonderful I started this, and now this is the result, look, look what I've achieved, and one feels very happy out of it, one feels a lot of pleasure, and the self has got its cause, it started it, it's got its result, and the self feels very happy. Marvellous, it's a coincidence. So, Sometimes, in the movement of the self, it says, I started this, and there's the movement that went, which went on, and then the result has, has come. 
and things as we know in the movement and the start that takes place there and the result may be quite different and in both times the self, the sense of I really feels it's the start it initiated and then it got the result whatever it, it, it and sometimes the result's very very painful just remember your last marriage so <laughs> so one begins with something and one has no anticipation, no expectation or whatever that how I started something and the, what the result which came to me was. And, and it seems so unfair when we can put a tremendous amount of energy and, and initiate, initiate things and get things going, etc., etc. And then the outcome is polar opposite to everything that we had thought. Everything that we believed, everything that we worked for, everything that we aimed for, completely the opposite. And sometimes in the, in the sense of uh, cause of things, we say, oh, I started this, I really got this going. And then we never see any uh, result. We, perhaps we don't see any result because we forgot what we started and we went on to something else and, and it's gone by the way. Or we start something and perhaps there's a very long-term view with regard to it. We're not really thinking in results in our lifetime. And some of us need to do that as well. And therefore there's just something happening. But how vulnerable this world of self, cause and effect is. Extraordinary. Because it's not as though you and I are saying, oh, I'm starting in terms of a cause from a clean slate, whatever, because we see there is the past, and we say, oh, the past is cause, and its impact is on the present. And how I experience the present, the causes that come to me, the effects that come, rather, the effects that come to me, they start me off in a new cause. And I live as a human being, infatuated, preoccupied with thinking about, dwelling on cause and effect, and the self's involvement in it. And the teachings are try to, not easy to do, the teachings in a way are try to shake it a little bit. Not to be so persuaded in any way whatsoever that in some way that's absolutely how things are. Even though experiences, feelings and thoughts, etc., etc., seem to want to make that the reality. The, the teachings of the, the middle way is an encouragement to us in a way to see if we could look differently and therefore not feel so much bound up with cause and effect. Maybe we could define what's the, what is called the uncaused, the unaffected. In that middle ground, if we're going to shift the language away from the I, me and my and look and respond differently, and it's no easy task for us as human beings to do, maybe to, to look at just a small sequence of things and to see what goes on in that small sequence and to look at it as a sequence. What I got in mind here is take any situation in life and the initial thing that occurs with the situation is a contact. 
is a contact. And the contact, whatever it is with, something going on within, something going on, the, from the contact it touches a place of feeling. Buddha, the, the Buddha, I was uh, reading a passage the other day, there's a tremendous amount of um, speculation that goes, goes on. And, and this is about um, the beginning of things and the end. And there are people who are wasting their mind away. At least I can say. <coughs> going on about how the world began. And completely convinced or, or trying to find out and all sorts of views and terrible arguments uh, um, taking, taking place. And and so one hears, of course, from the scientific view, which is the more predominant view, views that the world began from, um, I think, a bit of the, I can't remember now, the bit of the sun falling off or a big explosion, big bang theories, uh, etc. And then it all cooled down. And then from its uh, cooling down, the interaction of this, that and the other, life came, etc., uh, etc. Et and then... Uh, but there's many other views, of course. There's the religious uh, view from the Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, especially of um, God created the world in seven days, Adam uh, uh, and Eve, and then uh, Eve uh, bit the apple, and <laughs> we all have to pay the price for uh, this. Just incidentally, from um, Monday evening... Um, I'm teaching in New York and I, I've always wondered, I've always thought, I, I may be wrong, that the Big Apple and that apple maybe had a relationship. And, <laughs> but you can advise me uh, later on. Maybe New York was the original Garden of Eden. Times have changed. Anyway, so I was in Australia years, which is uh, Sally's uh, uh, motherland, uh, um, years and years ago. And a reporter from uh, the radio station came to uh, interview me. I was uh, teaching in the Queensland. And she commented, and this is, uh, this is the contact, the feeling, the views and opinions, the desire, the views and opinions arising, etc. And she said, she said to me, um, the Christians say that um, God created the world, and then Adam and Eve, and we are all. The scientists say that there was a big bang. She said, what do you Buddhists say? So I said, the Buddha said that we were born from elephant shit. <laughs> and she said, do you believe that there were elephants before the world? <laughs> you know, in, 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 in other words, what does it matter? Is, is it going to make a, a great difference to the way we brush our teeth in the morning, what, what the views and opinions are? And the, 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 Buddha, the Buddha says, the mind moves and it makes contact. And then the contact produces the feeling. And the feeling then starts to produce the thinking. And then one begins, he says, to think 
in a particular way again and again until that uh, view that, and opinion becomes the view of the way things are. That's how it starts. It starts from a contact when there's a feeling from it and the feeling there's a desire to know, there's interest or whatever. There's going through whatever it might be, research, etc. The views and opinions arise and from those views uh, uh, and opinion through time, through continuity, they begin to get consolidated uh, in, in the mind. When put under pressure, the mind, I'm adding now, when they're put under pressure, the mind easily begins to contract more solidly around the view. And that's one has there's differences and tensions and, and uh, argumentativeness and people trying to prove they know better than others, etc., etc., so that same kind of process, and the same thing is going on, of course, with the end of the world in another, in another uh, way altogether. And we forget just how much feeling is, in fact, involved in it. When you and I might express views about the state of our beloved Earth, when you and I might express views about the long-term future, about what might happen, or if it continues like this, what will happen, etc. Never to underestimate the potency of a contact with an idea or a concern, the feeling which arises connected to it, the unpleasant feeling that arises, and the strength of the unpleasant feeling about the future life on Earth will be extraordinarily influential in shaping the strength of the view. And that yet we speak, either whether it's about the past or whether we speak about the future, as though the view was independent of all feeling, the view was independent of all contact, and the view was independent of all latent conditioning. As though it was objective, detached, disconnected, and was an absolute independent statement about what is. Not realizing that the contact, the feeling, the perceptions, the views and opinions and all that goes with it is all coming out of the mind. It can't come outside of the mind. Just as that goes on with us in terms of our views and opinions and, and speculations about the past or about the, about the future, we also do it in our daily life. Could we, coming back to that earlier point for a moment, could we in our attention to existence, instead of I, me and my, look at the process, including our natural right to express our views about things, but see it more as that sequence. There is a contact. The contact is generating the feeling. The feeling is generating uh, the view or maybe the desire before the, the view, and that's the formation, Buddhist word here, that's the formation which is showing itself in the mind. Could we be willing not only to look in that way with regard to our own existence, but learn to see that, not easy of course, but learning to see that with regard to others. What they are expressing, whether we like it or not, approve of it or, or, or not, is generated out of a contact, 
generating the feeling, generating the view, and that's what's manifesting out of the person, out of their heart, out of the mind, out of their conditions in the present. Not easy. It's not easy to look that way with ourselves, and it's not that easy either to look that way with another, nor easy, obviously, when it's actually taking place with one so-called oneself and another. That even in those situations, two people have made a contact, eyes and their ears, maybe touch, from the, uh, the contact, some feeling is arising in the moment, from the feeling, some language is manifesting in some way or other. Could we include and embrace in daily life a practice which says, let me acknowledge that. And the time when it's most important to acknowledge that is when, it's, when there is a problem. When there is a problem. When you and I are in at ease with our communication, with ourselves, or with, uh, with others, or whatever, then the, the language of I and my is fine. It just settles into the framework of the language in the framework of the communication. It's still helpful as a practice to see it at that time. But when there's intensity, when there's a difficulty, in those times, how quickly the me and the you, the self, gets to the foreground, and therefore the manner of the communication becomes angry, upset, negative, and much more frequency of use of you, often in an attacking mode, or in a me, in a defensive mode, or whatever. So if we explore in our relationship to uh, finding wisdom in life, it means, can I observe, can, I, can there be enough awareness in life of when it's just, there is contact, there is feeling, there is this conditioned mind, this is the formations that are going on right now. And in doing that, either either if it's coming from within or if it's coming from without, it may help us to handle difficult situations much more clearly. We're trying to find a middle way between attack and defense, between clinging on to or trying to get rid of. Trying to, trying to see if there's another ground and observation and description changes significantly. Remember a dear f uh, friend I hadn't heard of, but got in contact with me recently. And she uh, was, was in Vienna, going home one night. And she's a Dharma teacher. And not far from her home, about 11 o'clock at night, she told me, uh, she was attacked. And a man um, grabbed her from behind, had... Um, a knife to her throat, and it was an attempt at a robbery to take her a bag, etc. And as soon as she felt, she said, the knife across the throat, to her surprise, immediately what emerged out of that was contact and sensation. That's why she's a Dharma teacher. <laughs> <laughs> Just contact and sensation. And he started whispering threats into her ear. He had her right round the throat, the knife on the throat. And she said, to her surprise, 
out of her mouth came the words, do you think this is a good idea? <laughs> and the guy said, you're crazy, and ran off. <laughs> so, I don't say, because one is aware of contact and feeling, it's going to protect you from, uh, etc., obviously. But sometimes, in just being with what we've been doing through the days together, the very bare experience, in its bare most actuality, there is a contact, there is a feeling. And keeping steady with, steady with that and clear with that in, in the moment can safeguard for, through the clarity of that from what normally would take place in a mind which is in, totally lost in the self would be fear or anger. That would be the self. Fear and anger uh, arising. And when situations that order and uh, similar ones are of fear and anger in that way, as we know, then anything can happen. The stakes go up that much more high in those kind of situations. So our practice of finding that, that uh, middle ground and, and attending uh, to that uh, middle, middle ground, middle ground re really matters. And I had an extraordinary email from a friend, Alison, on the West Coast. I just saw uh, a week or, or two ago, and she was on her way to uh, to uh, Budgaya. She's a photographer. She has a name's Alison Wright. She has a beautiful book of photographs of the Tibetan community. And travelling in um, northern uh, Laos, somebody here said they were in Laos many many years ago, and in making the uh, making the journey from Laos, taking photographs, she was on a, a bus. And it's just country roads there. It's very, very uh, rural. And the bus had a head-on collision with another bus in the middle of nowhere. And just absolute nightmare to be in. And she was uh, on, on that bus. And a uh, number of people, many people were very badly injured. A number of people, uh, two or three people uh, died. She had, show me the photographs, huge wounds um, got down one side, tremendous amount of uh, uh, breathe, um, bleeding taking place. And as she found out later, the impact of the crash moved all of her internal organs. All of them. Everything got moved significantly, inches around, around the body as a force of the impact. And... It was 12 hours before she was treated. And she said in a long uh, um, and very uh, touching uh, uh, e email to me uh, about this, uh, that she felt and she was sure that she was going, uh, going, going to die. And she just was able to whisper to somebody to, uh, to tell the family uh, a, a few things because she was getting ready, she said, to die. And all that she did amidst this um, terrible uh, accident in, in, in Laos, she said, and all that she could do, she said, she just remembered her practice, just to stay with each breath as it came and as it went, and not sure whether that would be the last breath. And finally, someone came and gradually and slowly and hours away got her to, 
a hospital and the uh, doctors there said, you shouldn't be alive in this condition. And she said she just felt, she just, the, the practice, she said she never realized, she said she's always thought of herself as a lousy meditator. She'd never <laughs> been able to watch her breathing. And she'd done all of these uh, retreats and she, and, and she said through that whole, whole time she was just able to be with what is. She just couldn't believe that she could uh, do, do that. And so sometimes in situations there, there's the bare contact, there's the bare uh, actuality. She's now on the uh, way to uh, very good uh, recovery through all, all of this. She'll, she's still band, bandaged, etc., etc. will be for a year or so getting treatment. But I just say sometimes in the midst of all these practices and all that's taking place and all the reminders to us about getting behind all the external and being with the bare actuality, again and again and again. We will never know that how important that is to us. And therefore, getting behind the fears, getting behind the aggression, behind the negativity, and just really learning to stay with the very bareness of existence. That makes the contribution to truly seeing things as they are. And it's an extraordinary thing that men and women have in this capacity to see things uh, as they are and to stay steady and connected with them in such a way that it's enlightening, in such a way that it's liberating, in such a, in such a way that the whole angst of existence, the whole problems of existence, the whole worries of existence seem to drop off. And that's the, 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 the beauty and the significance and the wonder. So each time we've gone back to our breath, each time we've just been with the body, each time we've just been with the moment, all that the self over the years and all the ways that we have dressed ourself up through information, through experiences, through memories, through roles, through knowledge, through status, all of that, we've just put all of that aside. And we said, all of that is just the, the build-up of the self. And we've said, we're more interested going deeper into things to touch what we might call dependent arising. Touch the process of contact to feeling, to the movement of the mind, to views and opinions. And getting with the bare simplicity. And that bare simplicity is not problematic. not problematic. It's just what it is. And we have the capacity to be steady and clear about it. And therefore, life isn't to be worried about. Fear isn't a necessity for living. Anger is just an old reaction which doesn't say anything about anything. Clinging to this and holding to that is obscuring the bare moment-to-moment -moment simplicity of things. And that access and that sense of the immediacy of the bareness of things, the bare actuality of things, to wake up to that. And we see, well, this life is just 
extraordinary. And we realize that the totality of it is extraordinary. That if we have life, then we have death. If we have coming, we have going. If we have appearance, we have disappearance. If we have presence, we have absence. And one can't be without the other, so they all belongs together. And we woke up to it in, 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 in such a way that it's liberating because it's non-problematic. And that's the lovely thing about the teachings, that our own experience confirms it. We don't have to believe outside of the immediacy of experience. We don't have to have an ideology. We don't have to read a book about it. We don't have to have a, have a guru. We, do, we don't have to have the word spirituality in our life or anything. Through our own direct experience with the bareness of things, that is what illuminates us. We awaken to it. May your beings live with awareness. May all beings be profoundly connected with the process of life. May all beings be awakened. Have a couple of quiet minutes, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.